This is an ABC podcast. You're right, and Giorana, and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol, back for a Monday morning. Hopefully, you've had a great weekend. What about that Bleda Slow Cup? Quietly happy that the All Blacks won. Uh, and also a happy Epitoma Otereo Māori Kuki Airani Week for all our beautiful Cook Island families out there. Hey, look, on the show today, what will be the lasting significance from these visits of high level diplomats in the Pacific region? Global warming temperatures continue to rise, and uh, we cross live to South Africa to get the latest on what has been a big weekend for our Pacific netball teams. For any of our stories, make sure you head to our website. Website. In your search engine, you just need to type ABC Pacific Beat. And feel free to share across all your social media platforms. It's Aggie Tupou and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, though, the Chief Medical Officer of American Samoa's only hospital has resigned after claiming that a measles outbreak earlier this year was fake. He says the hospital board also falsely claimed he had a mental breakdown. But the American Samoan government is defending its decision to declare a public health emergency earlier this year. Marion Farr reports. When American Samoa declared a public health emergency in April this year, fear spread across the island. And this is alarming. A, a, a measles outbreak in American Samoa yeah. has now led to a public health emergency. Public health emergency declared. It came after the government reported two measles cases, sparking concern about a potential outbreak. Schools and childcare centres closed for three weeks and neighbouring islands imposed travel bans to stop the spread. But one senior health official says it was all for nothing. If they had actually called us before they declared the outbreak, myself and our director of paediatrics would have all said, don't do this. You're jumping the gun. Dr Joseph Shumway was the chief medical officer of American Samoa's only public hospital, the JBL Medical Centre. He was suspended from his role earlier this month after publicly stating that there was no measles outbreak in the Territory. Dr Shumway says the two reported cases were false positive laboratory tests. A very basic medical student could have seen the labs and realised that that was a false positive. The American Centre for Disease Control, or CDC, visited American Samoa in May after the cases were reported. They conducted further testing on the island. When the CDC came, they were emphatic that none of the cases were positive for measles, that there not, had not been a single measles case in American Samoa. The CDC did not provide the ABC with information about the laboratory results. A spokesman says the CDC provided technical assistance to American Samoa for a cluster of paediatric rash illness cases of uncertain cause with initial positive test results for measles. Dr Shumway claims the American Samoan government has misled the public about the outbreak. After the CDC comes and actually tells the Department of Health that there were no measles outbreaks, I naturally just assumed that someone was eventually going to come and the public, and that never happened. He says the hospital board also told him not to speak publicly about the CDC results. I was specifically told just to keep my mouth shut. Speaking to Congress this month, the chairman of the hospital board said Dr Shumway had experienced a mental breakdown. Dr Shumway denies the claim. 
There's no truth to that whatsoever. I've never had any history of depression, anxiety, or mental incapacity at any time in my life. And for that kind of a personal attack to be lobbied, just such an abrasion and bold fashion tells you that uh, no one really cares about the truth. The chairman of the JBL Hospital Board did not respond to the ABC's request for comment. On July 11, Dr Shumway was suspended from his role as CMO. A letter from the hospital's acting CEO says statements Dr Shumway provided to the media damaged the hospital's reputation. It said his actions showed a lack of respect and were below the expected standard of conduct. Dr Shumway says he's been treated unfairly. I was immediately suspended yeah, for basically telling the truth. The other thing in our code of conduct for the hospital is there can't be retribution. It, it talks all about truthful behaviour and right. <laughs> I, I spoke the truth. Dr Shumway has resigned from his position since speaking with the ABC last week. The Department of Health has not responded to our request for comment about Dr Shumway's allegations and his suspension or provided evidence of the positive measles tests. Chief Epidemiologist Scott Anisi says the two original tests, which were sent to a reference laboratory, were not false positives. The test was confirmed by them to be positive for measles, but there was not enough of the specimens left to be able to be sent to the CDC's lab for further testing. He stands by the government's public health response. There was five weeks in between when the individual sample was sent and when we actually received notification. And weeks after that, we received notification of a positive test for the second positive, if you will. So if you're looking at the time frame, the response mechanism was severely behind and the response had to be aggressive. In 2019, a measles outbreak in nearby Samoa claimed more than 80 lives. Dr Anisi says it was important to be cautious. We responded accordingly and, you know, we responded aggressively. And we are still reporting that there's two positive cases until we can get any more information. But due to the lack of of specimens, there's no way that the CDC could confirm nor deny the positive cases. And he says the health department has been transparent with the public. As far as testing is concerned, all the testing information that was done by the CDC has been released. Dr. Scott Anisi, Chief Epidemiologist in American Samoa, with that report by Marion Farr. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Now, the Pacific has been a magnet for high-level diplomatic visits in recent times. Last week alone saw visits by the French President and both the US Secretaries for State and Defence. But what's the lasting significance of these latest visits? Jan Kahoot takes a look with this report. Last week, Emmanuel Macron swept through the Pacific visiting New Caledonia, Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea. In Port Vila, he boarded a French military patrol ship and spoke Bishlama to the crowd at the Melanesian Arts and Culture Festival. Long life Melanesia! Long life Franis! Long life Republic! Most locals were excited to see him. 
On 30th July, it will be 43 years that we are independent. It's good that the French president is here because we enjoy our independence. But it's thanks to France as well who gave us our independence too. So we are so privileged that he is here today, especially during this week of celebration. I believe the government authorities have shared with Macron what the country needs to develop the country more for the future. They bring things to us, France, like other countries, including Australia. So I hope each will send us their materials so we can create some solid structures for our future. Perhaps his most important stop was in New Caledonia, where he brushed off calls for a fourth referendum on independence from France and told people the territory will be given a new autonomous status. He reiterated his belief that France remains a strong power in the Pacific and announced an increase of troops in the territory and a doubling of military spending. Senior Research Fellow at Griffith University, Dr Tess Newton-Kane, says France is showing itself again in the region. I think it's part of how he wants to demonstrate that France sees itself as a Pacific presence and a Pacific power beyond simply being the administrator of its uh, the territories that it still holds. And I think it's also a part of how uh, we're seeing a bit of a reset of France's relations in the region that that ties in with all sorts of things, including um, the upset of AUKUS and how France um, maintains its position. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken came to New Zealand after opening the new U.S. Embassy in Tonga on Wednesday. He met with New Zealand's Prime Minister Chris Hipkins and Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta and discussed New Zealand's potential in AUKUS. Dr Kane says France, the US and others are clearly scurrying to increase their presence and influence in the region. Well, it's a continuation of what we've seen over the last little while of a lot more engagement of that type, visit diplomacy in the UK, the US, India, all sorts of people wanting to spend more time in the Pacific than we've seen recently and be meeting with the senior leadership of the region to discuss a whole range of things. Both Mr Blinken and Mr Macron targeted China in their comments, denouncing what they called growing imperialist threats in the region, which threatens to undermine the development of small nations. Dr Kane says that's a bit rich coming from the US and France. It's interesting that they've both chosen to uh, focus on imperialism or colonialism, given that both the US and France are still colonial powers in the region and have been for some time. And that's not necessarily, um, that's been very much a mixed experience for the people who have been on the receiving end of those colonial powers. Dr Kane, a dual Australian Ni Vanuatu citizen, says Pacific Islanders want to see what positive benefits will come from the increased engagement of France, the US and others beyond the geostrategic jostling for influence. Pacific people and communities are looking for are really strong, meaningful indications that these partners are seeking to establish long-term relationships that can be deepened and broadened and uh, really kind of embedded into the way that uh, governments operate together and the way that people of these countries interact with each other.
Jan Kahoot reporting there. Climate scientists predict that this month is set to become the hottest on Earth since record-keeping began, following an already record-hot June. The UN says the simultaneous heat waves devastating the Northern Hemisphere indicate that the world is not just experiencing global warming, but rather global boiling. Meanwhile, new data released today shows 21 of Earth's 30 hottest individual days on record occurred this month alone. Fatima Olume reports. It's a cruel summer for large areas of the Northern Hemisphere. Wildfires in the central part of Greece have flared up, causing an explosion at an ammunition depot and leading to mass evacuations, including of this man from his village. It's been very bad all morning. Burning embers are constantly rekindling fires around the houses. What we fear the most are the explosions. We're evacuating the entire village. Wildfires have also raged through large areas of Algeria in recent days, killing at least 34 people and displacing thousands. In the Bajaya province, Tawus Timizar's house was destroyed by the fire. She's come back home to assess the damage. Everything was gone. Everything burnt. Our belongings, our animals... Everything was gone. Thankfully, we escaped with our lives. Otherwise, we would have lost everything. When we came back home, we found that everything was burnt and gone. The out-of-control fires are a byproduct of the scorching heat that's taken over parts of Europe, Africa, North America and Asia. Antonio Guterres is the United Nations Secretary-General. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. He paints a grim picture of what we're already seeing. July has already seen the hottest three-week period ever recorded, the three hottest days on record, and the highest ever ocean temperatures for this time of year. The consequences are clear and they are tragic. Children swept away by monsoon rains, families running from the flames, Workers collapsing in scorching heat. Antonio Guterres calling for urgent climate action from world leaders. Leaders must lead. No more hesitancy. No more excuses. No more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. It is still possible to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius and avoid the very worst of climate change but only with dramatic, immediate climate action. Experts say what this also means is that humans need to start adapting to hotter temperatures. Chris Hewitt is Director of Climate Services at the World Meteorological Organisation. That is likely to drive more heat waves, more intense, more prolonged heat waves. And so that, as an example, we would need to adapt to those heat waves to take care of vulnerable societies or the environment So yes, there's a need to adapt to um, increases in temperature. With large parts of the United States under heat warnings, ways of adapting are already being considered by President Joe Biden. Today I'm announcing additional steps to help states and cities deal with the consequences of extreme heat. First, I've asked Acting Labor Secretary Julie Hsu to issue a heat hazard alert. It clarifies that workers have federal heat-related protections. We should be protecting workers from hazardous conditions, and we will. 
Associate Professor Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick is a climate scientist with the University of New South Wales. She says there is only so much heat humans can cope with. We're talking about temperatures of mid-40s or higher almost every day for parts of the heatwave over, over places like Italy and Greece. And that's just, that's abhorrent. That's really hard to cope with. It doesn't matter who you are or how fit you are. It's very hard for your body to to withstand that heat for such a long time. The blame for the record heat has been pointed firmly at rising greenhouse gas emissions for exacerbating the Earth's natural warming forces. Now, it's likely that these heat waves probably would have occurred this summer, but they likely wouldn't have lasted as long or be as intense because of climate change. Data published by the UN and the EU's top climate agencies shows the average temperature for the first three weeks of July is tracking significantly higher than the current record, which was set four years ago in 2019. Fatima Olume and Tin Logan reporting. Meanwhile, as heat waves rage across Europe, in the southern hemisphere, the Pacific has experienced cooler than usual temperatures, but has seen a rise in ocean temperature. So to find out why that is, we are joined by Saleh Sanime, who is Meteorological and Climate Advisor at the Secretariat of the Pacific Environment Programme. With that, I say welcome, Saleh. Uh, uh, thank you and uh, good to uh, be in the programme. Uh, again, yeah, we appreciate your time this morning. Uh, as I've said there in the introduction, we have seen those heat records topple uh, in parts of Europe, but in the Pacific, it's actually been colder than usual. Could you explain why that is? Yeah, for the Pacific, the El Nino, uh, we are now going through an El Nino fa- uh, phase. And in an El Nino phase, especially for the western uh, part of the Pacific, uh, it is slightly uh, cooler during those periods due to uh, the El Nino and how, you know, the uh, the mechanics around it. Uh, but the oceans are usually warmer. Uh, the oceans are usually warmer in the um, on the eastern side of the Pacific compared to the western side of the Pacific. Uh, so, Lisa, when we talk about El Nino, the fact that it is already developing, what will that actually mean for our Pacific communities? So, uh, El Nino uh, usually mean for those countries in the Western Pacific, um, uh, it will be suppressed uh, rainfall. Uh, so, countries like um, Solomon Islands, parts of Solomon Islands, uh, Fiji, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, and um, uh, Tonga, Samoa, uh, some of these countries will be experiencing drought uh, events, uh, whereas those countries that are in the Central Pacific, like Kiribati, Nauru, uh, Northern Cook Islands, they will be experienced. Uh, they will be experiencing uh, above uh, above rainfall. Now, all of this, every El Nino uh, events are different. Uh, they are not all the same. Uh, but if you are in the Central Pacific where the islands are lower uh, and you you are getting a lot of uh, rainfall together with sea level rise, uh, inundation is something that is very easy to happen, uh, where a lot of rainfall is already causing uh, the water table to rise. And then uh, when you have uh, events like king tides uh, or spring tides, uh, then you, those communities will be experiencing uh, inundation. Uh, now, 
when we uh, and and I had uh, you know uh, the earlier um, uh, uh, sound bites uh, on the impacts of uh, climate change. Now, uh, this for us is very is very real, and and when we get such events that are happening, uh, we our islands will be experience, uh, experiencing uh, a lot of the impacts differently differently from the last events that they've uh, experienced. So for those for those islands that will be going through the drought uh, event uh, that will be brought about by the El Nino, uh, this is something that we're encouraging um, uh, all our communities and especially the various sectors like the agriculture sector uh, to be vigilant and to take note of the information uh, released by the National Meteorological Services. Mm. I understand, you know, with the Pacific, it's experiencing a rise in ocean temperature. You have sort of um, alluded that it is possibly because of El Nino, but is there anything else, though, that has probably brought that on? Yeah, so the, um, I mean, global warming is, uh, is a serious, is a serious uh, uh, problem for us. Uh, ocean temperature continues to rise, and one of the things that is pro- probably enhanced during events such as uh, El Nino events are what are called marine heat waves. Now, marine heat waves are kind of isolated um, uh, areas where the temperature would rise, uh, the sea surface temperature would uh, would increase, and often would lead to death of. Uh, of uh, fish species, especially if it is close to the coastlines. And this has already been experienced over the last few years, uh, where all of a sudden some of the coast, either in Fiji, Kiribati, Vanuatu, uh, they would experience death of uh, uh, fish along the, along the coastlines. Uh, when we get these El Nino events, and especially now that over time, uh, this will become a big issue. And uh, some studies have already shown uh, that this this will be one of the one of the big problems that uh, a lot of the Pacific Islands that you know depend and rely on uh, our marine resources for food eh? for protein uh, that they will face uh, and and it's something that you know uh, each each government will have to look at uh, developing policies on how how to manage their fish resources in accordance with this new environment that uh, we are now living. Mm. Uh, if you're tuning in, you're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Aggie Dubon. I'm chatting with Asane Sanime from the Secretariat of the Pacific Environment Program. Uh, so, so I'd like to know then, obviously with the work that you do, what is it or the goal uh, of being able to ask, I suppose worldwide, what they need to do to be able to help our Pacific nations obviously not drown due to climate change? Yeah, thank you. So for for a very long time, the Pacific has, they have been advocating for a reduction of greenhouse gases. Um, In Paris, we set a goal to reduce to and have 1.5 degrees Celsius as the the target. Um, At the last meeting, IPCC revealed that uh, it is a challenge to um uh, to reach this goal uh, but we already seen the impacts of uh, and the reason why uh, the pacific is advocating for you know for us to keep global temperature down uh, you know with the heat waves that uh, you you had mentioned uh, you had mentioned earlier now one of the big um 
uh, one of the big items that was discussed at the last COP was loss and damage uh, in supporting Pacific uh, in supporting countries th that have contributed less uh, to this issue uh, to be able to adapt. So that is the that is the next big ticket item for uh, for the region, uh, especially in advocating and uh, trying to put in place uh, mechanisms to allow for uh, countries to access opportunities under loss and damage. Thank you for that, Salesa. Now, you know, we've had reports from the United Nations, uh, specifically the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, saying that the era of global boiling has arrived. How high could temperatures rise over the next couple of years? I mean, are we looking at a 45 or a 50 degree day? Is that a possibility? Uh, I, w I would say that would be a possibility for larger continents uh, and especially for the interior of the continents, for the Pacific. Uh, that is, I mean, we're already facing above 30, uh, 35 uh, degrees Celsius. So we, uh, some of our islands are small, so we are kind of, uh, you know, cushioned with the with the breeze that's, that comes from the ocean. Uh, uh, but it, it is something that even even for islanders uh, experiencing above 30 or even 35, that is a big um, a big temperature for us to be able to cope. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's something that we are not looking forward to it. And I hope with what is being experienced in Europe, uh, that the general public will go behind and, and try and support the leaders to, you know, to commit and reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. Uh, Salisa, look, we want to say thank you for your time this morning. Really appreciate your expertise. Hopefully we can catch up next time. Thank you so much. No worries. Uh, that is Salisa Nime, Climate Advisor uh, for the Secretariat of the Pacific Environment Programme. Stay tuned, though, because up next will be our news wrap with producer Carl Evans here on Pacific Beat. Newsroom 40. Hosted by me, Sam Wikes. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today and look forward to the next-gen Nisian footy stars. Nisian footy. Nisian footy. Monday afternoons at 2 o'clock, PNG time. On ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back. Yes, it is that time to see what is happening around the region. Uh, we've got our news wrap provided by producer Carl Evans. With that, I say good morning. How are you doing? I'm well, Aggie. How about yourself? <laughs> yeah, good. I had a good weekend. You had one? I did, actually. <laughs> I went and saw uh, I went and saw Oppenheimer. If, uh, if, if you haven't seen it yet, ah. take a pillow. It is very long. <laughs> <laughs> I will keep that in mind. Hey, look, let's get into uh, the show here in regards to our news wrap. I believe Nauru's president, he's actually expressed disappointment, though, over a decision to delay the launch of deep-sea mining projects. What did he have to say there? Yeah, so uh, President Russ Kun um, says Nauru is extremely disappointed at the International Seabed Authority's failure to adopt uh, new regulations and rules to enable uh, the seabed exploration of the clarion Clipperton zone. So we reported on, uh, on this last week, and the nation had formally requested the council complete this work uh, within two years. 
However, with the failure to adopt these rules, that deadline has now expired. Therefore, it's unclear uh, when and if you know exploration of this area will go ahead. It's a huge area. It's, uh, it's located between Hawaii and Mexico, very rich in minerals as well. Uh, recently, a team of researchers there actually found that uh, there's 5,000 new uh, life forms of species uh, in the area as well. So it's yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that impacts what happens there going forward. Um, however, the president did, did acknowledge that um, there were significant efforts over the last two years towards the adoption of that draft. And uh, yeah, he's looking forward to uh, yeah, discussing it further at the, uh, the, the COP27 meeting. I was just intrigued by the 5,000 species that they've recently found. Yeah, we did that on, on, a, on a news wrap uh, a, a month or two ago now from memory. But uh, when I say species, I'm talking about sort of, you know, you know, new sharks or sea monsters uh. or things like that. But, uh, yeah, like little yeah, starfish, stuff like that. Nice. Uh, France uh, will actually now establish a new embassy in Apia, is that right? Yeah, correct. The uh, the Samoa government has confirmed as much uh, in a statement. Uh, it said France and Samoa share the same values of democracy and uh, have a desire to strengthen ties to increase uh, peace, security and fight against climate change. So, yeah, this will be the first French embassy in Polynesia and it will strengthen ties between uh, Samoa and the French territories of uh, French Polynesia and New Caledonia. So, yeah, some, uh, some France really making waves in the Pacific. Macron doing his thing. <laughs> uh, we're going to sport, though. Uh, in Rugby Union. Round two of the Pacific Nations Cup took place over the weekend, which I know many would have seen. Um, how did these matches play out though, Kyle? Yeah, so pretty well for the Flying Fijians. Uh, they are now atop the standings of the Pacific Nations Cup after beating Samoa 33-19. Uh, they ran in uh, the first two tries in the opening 10 minutes to really seize control of that match. Uh, the second one going to his sufferer, Masi, who actually scored uh, on debut. Uh, Samoa did hit back with a try from Christian Liliofano. Uh, but they were unable to stop Fiji, uh, who led 30-5 to at the break. Um, Samoa, they were playing at home as well. They were able to grab some momentum in the second half, but uh, ultimately couldn't couldn't catch Fiji. Uh, uh, Tevita Ikanavare finished with uh, with two tries, played uh, played really, really well. Meanwhile, Tonga, they've suffered a second straight loss um, after losing to Japan, 21-16. to uh, Yeah, look, Japan obviously playing at home. They really wanted to bounce back after a loss the previous week as well, and uh, yeah, managed to outscore the Akali Tahi uh, three tries to two. Gotta love our Pacific Nations just putting their best out there. Um, but staying with sport, though, the PNG Hunters also returned to the field after a two-week break uh, from the Queensland Rugby League competition. How did they go? Yeah, look, I was really interested to see how they went, given, uh, yeah, pretty much everyone in the team got sent back to, to the Digicel Cup um, during the break, which is the, the local competition uh, in PNG to stop them from slacking off. And they looked great uh, to start the game. They really did. They, uh, they scored the first two tries. They were flicking the ball through the hand. Um, it was nationally televised, so I actually got to watch that one in Australia, which was great. Um, but they looked awesome. And, uh, and yeah, so 12-0, they were versing the Brisbane Tigers, who were a top-four team. Tigers did manage to score just before half-time, but the Hunters were still up 12-4 at the break. Uh, however, they kind of just collapsed in the in the second half and uh, ended up losing uh, 32-18. Um, so, yeah... Uh, uh, Ali Almond, uh, who's our ABC correspondent, she was able to catch up with uh, the captain, Ila Alu, after the match, and uh, here's what he had to say. The rugby league is an 80 minutes game. If you, gotta, if you really want to win, you got to play the whole 80. Mm-hmm. You can't just play one half and then and, you know, relax off in the second half because in every team in the, in the Plus Cup, they will always play to the 80. So that's something that we'll have to work on. 
And yeah, that's that's kind of what happened. They almost seemed content with their start and almost just just kind of took their foot off the gas, unfortunately, because they yeah they were really in that game. So they've made things a little bit difficult for themselves. Now they've virtually got to win the last three games of the season to make finals. So I'm not saying they can't do it, but it's it's probably it's going to be tough. You think? All the best. Hey, look, I always love the uh, underdog story. Hopefully they can make a comeback. Uh, but Carl, thank you very much for our news rep. Thank you, Aggie. No worries. Now, the head of Solomon Islands Ministry of Finance says the country is facing a cash flow crisis. Permanent Secretary Makini Dintana says revenue collected so far has been $97 million, uh, Solomon dollars below projections. He says the biggest expense is the hosting of the Pacific Games, which is putting pressure on government finances. This is the first time that the government is experiencing where uh, we have to pay in advance uh, during the year a total of 367 million. Normally, when we have such a big uh, commitment in the budget, we normally um, uh, structure them throughout the year so that it causes uh, uh, less pressure on, on, on the cash flow. But uh, as a requirement or commitment by the, by the government, we have to release um, big payment this year. So that's, I mean, put uh, additional pressure that we have to prioritize um, our resources in order for us to uh, pay um, uh, all the preparation of the uh, National Hosting Authority for the game, have sufficient funds months ahead before the game actually um, uh, commence. So so that is one of the big uh, reasons why um, uh, Treasury or Ministry of Finance uh, is also under um, cash flow uh, commitment. Makini Dintana, Solomon Islands Permanent Secretary of Finance. Pacific Beat. Donga have finished in the top two of their group in the opening stage of the Netball World Cup in Cape Town. The Dalla have won two of their three matches, with their only loss coming against group leaders Australia. Fiji, meanwhile, finished third behind the Dalla after upsetting Fiji to record their first ever World Cup win. ABC journalist Marion Kupal has been covering the action from the sidelines, and she joins us live from Cape Town. And now with that, I say, Malo at Maua Ahoni, how are you doing? Marion. How are you doing? <laughs> Very good. Uh, great to speak with you, of course, because you have been there. You have seen what has been happening on the sidelines. I'd love to start, though, with Tonga. They've won two of their three matches. Are they pretty much then now set uh, to go through to the second stage of the tournament? Yes, um, they are. Um, they will be against England tomorrow at 6 p.m. Cape Town, Cape Town time. And uh, it's something to look forward to as we have never played England on how we have never played world number one Australia, which um, obviously you've already mentioned that we lost against. Um, but, you know, um, I can personally say that uh, it was a great loss to Australia, especially Australia is number one in the world and nothing beats um Tonga for, le- for for losing for the first time uh to the great nation of Australia. Yeah, and that's the thing. Despite the loss, of course we know how Tongans are and how we still rally around the ladies. I mean, how have they actually looked on the court though? Have they been able to just gel really well? Yes, uh they have actually, especially with uh Moonia Gerard coming on and also uh with Catherine uh, Tutaviti. Um as you've known, uh Moonia Gerard has been in World Cup uh for Australia 
uh, three times now, and this is going. This is her fourth time representing Tonga, her second nation to represent, and it was a great gel mixture during the the tournament, especially against Australia, and uh, also with uh, Catherine Latu Tutaviti coming on, um, as this will be her second World Cup um, tournament, and also her third nation to represent, which is um, the girls have pretty much um, picked up the pace with uh, playing with them. Um, with those two um, during the tournament, yeah. Uh, look, I got to speak to the, you know, uh, the Tongantala captain, Hulita Veve, and I, uh, you know, hearing her talk, how has she been on the court, though, with being able to lead the team? Uh, you know, with Hulita, um, it, personally knowing her, she's a very humble uh, uh, lady, and, uh, you know, there's nothing else that gives us uh, much pride than seeing Hulita as uh, not having that much of a, a of a connection to Tonga except through blood by her father and uh, having her to represent and be proud of her Tongan uh, descent is, you know, it's, it's a pride for us all and it's a winning team. And she has gathered the team together. Um, every time the game starts, if you notice um, on, on, on TV, she would put up her hand as the lift, which is a symbol uh, and a reminder for all the team and the supporters that the reason why they're playing their on court is for God, king and country, which also means their family also. So every time when Julita sees a team, when they look tired or frustrated or feel like there's no hope, she lifts up her hand and then the rest of the team uh, will will lift and follow her through, lifting up their hand inside court and also uh, the reserves outside and also <laughs> us, the supporters too, will lift it up. Just a reminder, just a reminder to everyone, the reason and the purpose why they're here and playing and who are they playing for. Mm, that is mafana. Beautiful to hear. Uh, look, both Donga and Fiji, though uh, Marion, have played their games look, just about every day of the tournament. How have their bodies sort of been holding up? I mean, is anyone in uh, a possible risk of injury uh, if they're playing this often? Um, I can see that um, Monia Gerard have strapped her legs, both legs, uh, when they were playing against Australia. And, um, you know, Aggie, having to play against world number one all the way and, you know, that these are the best teams in, in netball, I'm sure they would be feeling exhausted and tired. But at the same time, the show must go on as um, uh, Tonga is looking forward to playing against England while Fiji is looking forward to being, to playing against Malawi. Um, Malawi number six and Fiji uh, down the lane, um, they still have to act up and play up um, just to maintain um, the position um, as number 17 or better. Mm-mm. Speaking of Fiji, though, they recorded their first ever win against Zimbabwe. I mean, gosh, how big of an achievement was that for them? Yes, um, it, it was an achievement. Very, very close as the first quarter. Uh, Zimbabwe led by 14 to 12. And uh, come the second quarter, Fiji started playing up, um, trying to get the, the attackers on point and also not to miss a goal um, with a score of 14 to 11 on the second quarter. And uh, the big difference came when the third quarter, quarter came on and Fiji made a big lead of uh, 17 to 10 um, until they sealed off um, everything with uh, 
the fourth quarter, Zimbabwe won the fourth quarter with 13 of nine, but it did not match up to Fiji's uh, overall score, which Fiji won by 52, Zimbabwe 48. Mm, beautiful. Uh, so that means, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Marion, Fiji have now finished third in their group, though. What happens to them now, if you could just confirm? Will they be playing any more games? Yes, they'll be playing Malawi tomorrow. Um, all the all the teams will be playing, regardless um, if you're second, third, or fourth. Uh, all the fourth play uh, position in each pool will have their own group E, and they will play be playing against each other for twelve, thirteen, four. Uh, 14, 15, 16, um, those, the, the four less teams will be playing against where the top three teams on each pool will be vying um, for the other positions in the, for, for, for one, two, three, four onwards. Nice. And for Donga, again, they have a rest day today before playing England tomorrow. Gosh, from what you've seen so far, how do you think they will go? Um, in the last uh, quarter, when Tonga was playing Zimbabwe, Jack, uh, the coach, managed to pull out some of the um, key players out. Um, I know for sure that that was one of uh, Jack's uh, strategy on giving them a break, as Tonga was already leading. So apparently, she benched um, Hulita Veve and got Luana Alcafol out to replace on centre, and also took out uh, the two shooters, Unique uh, Balavi and also Marie Hansen and uh, played Catherine Lato Tuitaviti and also Beyonce Balavi on the few last minutes of the last quarter, um, you know, just so that um, those guys, the number one players of Dala, will have a break for tomorrow's game. Marion, I have to ask, because you've got the two veterans there, you've got Moonia Gerard and, of course, you have uh, Catherine uh, Tuitaviti, who is, you know, they know the ins and outs of what games like this look like. I mean, how much of their presence has impacted the team? Um, I think it gives the team a lot uh, of confidence as uh, they look up to these two players that they have um, played in World Cups. And um, looking onwards when they're playing, especially with Catherine, she's playing and also coaching and uh, also, sometimes you can see her coaching the empires too at the same time. So it gives the girls kind of like a confidence on um, on on their position and and when they're playing, as Catherine is like speaking for them on what's going on in their minds. You know, especially this is the debut for the rest of the girls except these two, and this is a big deal for them. Yeah, I love that for the team itself. And look, because you've been there with all the supporters, gosh, how have you guys been feeling? Oh, my gosh. We have supporters from Gelea, Gelea Yongi's family. There's about 17 of them over here. And we also have um, Unique and Beyonce Balavi's family. There's more than 10 of them here. We also have uh, Julita's family. We have Catherine's family and also... Uh, Monia Gerard's family and other relatives that are here um, just supporting. Most of them are from Australia. They flew in from Australia and they just want to be here um, supporting. And uh, apparently um, also we also have our Minister of Foreign Affairs, um, sorry, Minister of Internal Affairs that's here, which is where the sports system is under. Um, Lord Vaya is here 
together with one of the board members of the Tonga Nepo, Viola Ulakai, and also, of course, the Tonga Nepo CEO, Salotisisfa, and myself. So there's only a handful of, of, of ourselves from Tonga, and the rest are all from Australia, families of the players cheering on. Mm, that is so mafana and fagalata just to hear everything that is going on there, Marion. We appreciate your time and enjoy the rest of the campaign. Thank you very much, Aggie and Ofatu. Malo. That was ABC journalist Marion Kupu giving us an update on the Netball World Cup. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Uh, recapping today's show, uh, the time global boiling has arrived as heat waves devastate the Northern Hemisphere. We were joined by Silas Anime, meteorological and climate advisor at the Secretariat of the Pacific. Uh, who says temperatures in the Pacific could reach as high as 35 degrees. For islanders are experiencing above 30 or even 35, that is a big temperature for us to be able to cope. And I hope with what is being experienced in Europe, that the general public will go behind and try and support the leaders to commit and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now remember, you can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. I'll be back tomorrow at 6am PNG time. For any of our stories, make sure you head to our website, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. But stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia though, because news is next, followed by Jacob McGuire on Nisha Daily. Until next time, I am Aggie Dubol. Appreciate your company here on Pacific Beat.